When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today, a glorious start to England's Euro 2020 qualifying campaign with a 5-0 win over the Czech Republic. We take a look at their strength in depth and whether, this time, football is really coming home. A good start too for Ryan Giggs' Wales, but not so much for our friends north of the border. Where now for Scotland? Probably still much the same place, just north of England. Plus, a look ahead to the business end of the Premier League season and Sam Dean's watertight case for the greatest goal ever scored. Let's take you now into the audio recording facility where I'm joined by my personal friend and colleague. It's JJ Bull. How are you, JJ? I'm great, Tom. I had a lovely weekend in Scotland. Yep. Um, however, the Scotland football wasn't good, but Scotland was good. Yes, we'll get into the Scotland football later. A pretty desperate time for them. Sitting alongside JJ, it is Mina Rizuki. How are you, Mina? Am I a personal friend? Well, let's let's assess at the end of the season. Like we've been doing this podcast for about you know three quarters of the season now. We'll see where we're at. It'll be the last question of the series, Mina. Oh we'll God, we'll rate so each mean. other's. Uh, we'll rate our <laughs> yeah, friendship friend, connection Mina. out of a hundred. Yeah, exactly. This is my personal friend, JJ, and sitting alongside him is just Mina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking any offence. Good, good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> alongside Mina, it is my work acquaintance, Sam B. <laughs> What's going on, Sam? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I've, I've quite enjoyed this international break, uh, which yeah. is rare and unexpected, but I'm quite pleased with that. How much of that is to do with England and their now seemingly unarguable resurgence um well i've quite i've been on the wales beat this week so i've quite enjoyed watching the those young lads run around but it does seem to be that young lads running around is the theme of the (laughs) the week and uh the freedom and excitement and exuberance of youth is quite invigorating i would say yeah that's very much been the vibe with england recently a very flattering uh but nevertheless enjoyable 5-0 win against the czech republic for them on friday night no one getting too carried away at this point but is it fair to say this is now a better England team than the one that got to the semi-finals of the World Cup? I like it much more because uh, it's forward thinking and it's using the strengths of England as opposed to trying to stop the positives of other teams, which is a natural progression. You start by building a solid defence and then you move on from there to do the rest of it. And it makes, yeah, it's really clever squad management, I think. And when, it, when do you think that change happened? Um, after the World Cup, because it's done now. So then they can move on and, and change the shape and go to a more... 
I think Southgate likes, I was about to say he likes football, but clearly he does. But <laughs> You'd really hope so. Well, yeah. Well, that's hard hitting analysis. But he, um, <laughs> the four, that 4 3 3 is, uh, you know, it's, it changes shape all the way over, but it's a very fluid, very fluid system now, as opposed to what we saw in the World Cup, which is very rigid. And there were clear things that worked in the World Cup system he had, which is a three back, you know, a three defence. Uh, but now there's players who are used to playing with each other because they've been there for that right amount of time. He's brought in younger players underneath them that can add a bit of pizzazz and jazz. In other words, it ended in double Z. And uh, now there's something about it that seems to really work. And because he has the solid foundation and can now trust the players, it'll work very well. I would say that because it was at Wembley and it is Czech Republic in context, they need to be able to play the way they did here against um, more, just better teams in more difficult situations. Well, they did that it. against Spain, obviously, before Christmas, um, with the 4-3-3, with the same shape. I think I think that 4-3-3, as you sort of said, it, it suits more of the players, really. I think during the World Cup with yeah. the 3-5-2, you could say that Walker was out of position playing as a centre-back. Sterling was out of position playing as sort of a number 10. And you could probably argue that Ali and Lingard as well playing as sort of more deep-line midfielders weren't quite in their natural positions, whereas this seems to be more players playing where they would play for their club and playing in positions they're more used to playing. It's very much like Man City, I thought, because as you can see, there's a huge amount of influence. He, he had it so the play would be often between three or four players at any time. So there's always people around to create little triangles and diagonal passes you want. But in in defence, the, the the wide forwards, so Sterling and Sancho would be wide midfielders, which is what you need to help the fullbacks. And also at times it was like a 4-1-2-1-2 the diamond because the players could then drop, and Kane would drop into the tent to allow Sterling to go ahead of him, and then Sancho was popping up all over the place. And also, when they had the ball, it was more of a back three, so one of the fullbacks would go up into midfield and join there to help give you numbers there, and the other person would drop in. And if both fullbacks went up, one of the midfielders dropped to make it a three across the back, so the little uh, diamond. It was cool. It's quite maybe quite a basic point, but pretty much all the top teams play a 4-3-3, or some variant on that, so yeah. it makes sense. <laughs> on international duty to play a system which they're used to. Like, Sancho knows where he needs to be because he plays that way with Dortmund. He doesn't need to think about, oh, OK, I'm playing three five two. I need to float behind Kane or whatever. He knows what he's doing sort of by sort of second nature, really, and it makes more sense when you've got less time on the training ground to have a system that naturally fits more players. It just it gives you those those lanes, um, four three three. There's There's naturally, you can create those... You can draw it on a pitch. Um, I do it often. I think it's quite fun. It's quite pretty. You can draw the little triangles that link the the different dots so you can see where the passing <laughs> lane should be but you can't just stand rigid there you have to be able to move fluidly if one person goes in someone goes out you know goes out and that way you keep those lanes free i do think that like the best sides are the ones that can be tactically versatile so that they don't have a specific set formation or shape and that they can adapt to the different roles if they need be depending on who the opponent is it's nice that England now, in much what you say, JJ, that they can impose their game and they're not ones just like right now, just too worried about how to neutralize the opponent, but more focused on actually showing the brilliance of their own game. But the only thing that worries me is that England always does this in all the qualifiers. And then... Oh, but it, it's so different to how the qualifiers used to be. Like, they were amazing in qualifying under Capello, but it was grim. It was like ground out 1-0s and 2-0s. As I said, it was an extremely fortunate 5-0. It didn't look like a 5-0 game. But just some of the moments and some of the movements and some of the joy of how England are playing feels quite different to me. How are England perceived in Europe, Mina, at this point? The World Cup, I can imagine the World Cup team was treated with a little bit of suspicion because it was quite basic. Um, but, But what about this team? Are they now kind of a team that people are beginning to fear a little bit more? 
I don't think it was a case of that England never played good football or they were never a team that everyone thought could take on the big big boys in Europe. It was more a case of they seemed to crumble under the pressure yeah. and demands were always really high of them. And that's why you, you'll see them in all the qualifiers, you know, where you'll have teams who actually do really well in the competition, like Croatia, sometimes Italy, obviously, but they won't, they'll falter in the in the qualifying stages because they, they just tend to be teams that really only ever thrive when their eyes are on them, when the competition's there when they when there is abuse and insults and people telling them that they might not make it that's when they seem to be at their best with England it was a case of how do you get a team that you know from a country that invented the game to just take an approach where they can be courageous and free-flowing and happy and liked and 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 take on all the pressure and actually perform to the levels expected of them so this is why for me I don't know how to judge this because you could say in the World Cup that their draw is fair and and a lot of the points made about them was that they they more were an opportunistic side than one that actually imposed their game and now they are imposing their game but the opponents are Czech Republic when it came, comes to a competitive game so I don't know what to think I love the fact that there's youth but there's youth in France there's youth in Germany now being tested out Italy's playing with children which is like you know I, I nearly fell off the floor um, fell off the floor fell off my chair onto the floor but this is seems to be like a new thing in football you know where everyone actually starting to trust the kids you know but I, again, what happens when it's a big game and the stage is set and sometimes you need to adapt your your mentality and adapt your style of football? Can they do it? Is it too grand to say it's a sort of new style of international football, that like international football is now no longer about fitting in the best names and the biggest stars? It's actually going to branch out and become a little bit of a younger team. And, you know, you look at this England team and the minutes they have or haven't had for their clubs... Uh, it's uh, it's potentially a sort of new strand to the game. We want to build a team, and you can't just do that by putting players all in the same place at once. You have to grow it. You saw with Germany, those players came through together and they took a long time to come together. And now, exactly what Mina's saying, when they're under pressure, I can think specifically Jordan Henderson always pops to mind. He's pinging 80-yard passes to no one when he's when he's under pressure, and it crumbles. It's not the right way to go about it. So to... To get over that, you need experience of high-pressure situations. So if you put an 18-year-old Callum Hudson-Odoi into a game now, and he plays, um, there's talk that he'll start against Montenegro. We're recording this on a Monday, so tonight. He's turned 19 today, Jojo. No, that's <laughs> Jaden Sancho. Oh! Oh! <laughs> One nil right. to Jaden. They're eight, See you later. <laughs> they're eight months apart, those two. Um, and... Uh, that, so then he gets this experience and because you're young you have I think you probably have less fear everyone's going to get nervous if you're a 28 year old and you're starting for England for the first time against away to Montenegro you're going to have the exact same fear as a young kid but you just have more experience of what it's like at different other levels but if you get it at that high level when you're young suddenly when you get to later stages you're better you see it in teams a lot when they get to the the quarterfinal of a competition one year then the next year they can go one stage further to the semis and to the final because you have that you know more what it's like so you know what to expect so you can better prepare for it and I think that's probably what's going on and I really like that they're trusting the youth now yeah can I just say something I was listening to Paul Mariner talk about um not not going to be perhaps the person that we turn to on this particular point but he was saying that he thinks um Callum Hudson-Odoi is ahead of Jadon Sancho because Jadon Sancho crumpled under the pressure when he was playing for Dortmund against Spurs and that he couldn't yank the team forward. And I just thought, what? 
Like, I, I, are so you, harsh. <laughs> I mean, you're putting a guy who barely played any football for Chelsea ahead of a guy who's basically the star of Borussia Dortmund this season. But having said that, this is there was a point being made as in, you know, th- what happens when the chips are down? Who's going to yank you through? And it is going to be a Kane and it is going to be Sterling. But there does need to be... I'm I'm all for youth and I'm all for like a team that's, you know, got a, a young average age, but I don't think it should be too much younger than 26 because I do think that you need what we call in Italy senators are, are men who when the time comes and you're feeling a, a lot of the pressure will tell you, it's a little bit like what Alex Ferguson would say, guys, this is Tottenham. You know, just makes you feel, just gives you back your swag. And I sometimes think that with kids, because they're so determined to show you how good they are, that they can fall under that pressure. Well, I think it's so exciting. And I, I fundamentally agree with all of that. But I just think it's so exciting that for so long, England have been craving technical players who can get the ball past the ball and actually, you know, absorb pressure in that sense. We saw it in the World Cup, even when we taken so many steps forward it was Modric and everyone left that semi-final going yeah. oh if only we had a Modric mm. but the players that are coming through now and these kids that are getting a chance and obviously that's to do with Southgate and to do with the system that they've come through but like they are that kind of player they are these technical players it's the first touch I think and you can see it's so important that when when you're under pressure and your first touch goes it's the first thing I see with England is the first touch goes is not natural whereas a player like Modric is the exact example in that semi-final in the World Cup you can ping the ball at him no matter how hard you hit it it's going to be dead he can just kill it and take it wherever he wants he can, he's already a step ahead because he knows when he touches it it's going to go to the next stage and you saw it even I think it's the fifth minute I think it was uh, Deli Alley in the middle of the pitch just the first he kills the ball at the pass turns looks can't get anywhere to go so he comes back and passes it really nice and patient but close control is so important and when you're in uh, the tight situations and you've got players uh, blocking your space you need to be able to fire the ball quickly to get it past other other players and then that first touch is so important and Sancho some of his little touches are amazing like he takes all the weight out of it and then turns there's one again the one little touch early on in the game where the ball's fired into him from about maybe a 30 yard pass and he kills it dead with his inside of his right foot and then drops and the defender's still running because he's, he's already won himself a yard of space just by this clever first touch and they haven't really had players like that for ages and they've got loads now obviously the big one is um, Phil Foden I, I was there on Thursday night when England under twenty ones played Poland. And it wasn't it wasn't a great game, but there were just a few moments with Foden where you just like this guy is the he is the absolute sort of He's almost like the secret weapon, isn't he? Because the hopes for him are that he is the absolute player of his generation and yet he seems to have fallen behind Sancho and Hudson Adoy in the pecking order for the senior team. Yeah, it must be tough because he's um He's the same age as them. They've all, they're all born within nine months, I think, of each other. And he is, it, is Foden turning nineteen today? <laughs> I don't believe. I don't I'll, believe get, so. I'll get it by the end of the day. JJ, JJ will know. Yeah. Um, but he obviously, yeah, he must be looking at those two, thinking, why, why can't that be me? And obviously, the reason is because he plays for Man City, which is why he can't get in the team. Uh, it's interesting hearing him talk on Thursday evening after the match, and he came out quite quickly. He didn't. It wasn't like we'd been prying as journalists into this stuff. He just came out and said, "I've lost quite a lot of fitness this year." for not playing and he's saying you know I hope to get it back having to do lots of extra work sprints and and gym work and stuff and that really made you realise that oh my god this guy there is a genuine chance that he's going to get wasted you know this absolute generational talent who is who has been touted for years and years as as the one coming through but I remember being a a different paper like four or five years ago on work experience and somebody mentioned oh there's this kid at City he's like 13 called Phil Foden who everyone says is is the one and like this everyone's known for ages about him but now he must be looking at others and thinking "Mm, 
He's at perfect age though, and he's getting a, he's getting a lot of so um, game time minutes. Should he leave? Absolutely, stay at Man City. I am convinced he'll play next season. He'll he won't start every single game, but he'll probably get about twenty starts, eighteen starts, something like that. This is the season where Man City have to win all the stuff. They could win a quadruple this this season. They could do it, and they've got De Bruyne and Silva, and you can't replace one of them just now because you have to win it. But next season, easily you're going to have time. You can replace him for Silva, cool, who's getting older still. And he's look at the experience he's getting. He's coming on in Champions League games. Coming, he's getting uh, cup starts. Not every time in the in the finals and semi-finals, but he's eighteen. So you don't have to start every single game. Sancho's playing every single game in Borussia Dortmund, but he's actually one of their best players already. He, took, he had the courage to leave. Yeah, sure enough. But, um, but Foden will get in the team at Man City. Guardiola has got passed for bringing in players. That he's done it, and he knows, and he's right. He's supposed to have mapped it all out with Foden and his family, hasn't he? Like what the next eighteen months look like. Well, it, I think the way he's done it looks. It, it um, suits the kind of career paths of other stellar players who have come into. And yes, they broke into the first team at Barcelona when he was 20, but he was getting the same sort of appearances and starts when he was younger. And it's very much a player like. Iniesta and Foden plays with his head really he's a, he's a step ahead of the game very much like David Silva actually when you watch him play and uh, I'm just convinced he's going to be a Pep will definitely be huge for him because of the style of player that he is so I agree with that and to a certain extent you don't really want to lose the teaching that he could offer him but I thought Jaden Sancho said something that was really interesting after the game and he said oh in the beginning you know I was sort of getting it wrong or they weren't all my moves weren't working out for me but I was told to keep going you know just keep going forward stick to the plan and it will come through and I think that kind of teaching tells you everything you need to know that if Southgate's saying to them it doesn't matter you'll mess up but I want you to stick to planning um, and it's almost that's when you think it's good that it's Czech Republic because courage is actually is the huge difference maker if these guys are allowed to just do that and not have to revert to caution then there's hope for this England side yet. All very wholesome and positive. Let's see how it goes in Montenegro on Monday night. Let's stick with international football for now. Wales saw off Slovakia. Sam, you were there. How was that match? I really enjoyed it. Good. Um, Giggs went for the full uh, play all the kids vibe. And he had uh, had Daniel James, he had Harry Wilson, he had David Brooks, he had Matt Smith. I mean, only three of the outfield players who started had more than 10 caps for Wales. So it was really inexperienced and quite an exciting team. And for the first half, they played some great stuff. Those four attackers, with Bale included with with the younger guys, were really popping it about. And Dan James is just phenomenal. I mean... Who does he play for? Swansea. He's the one who torched Carl Walker a few times a few weeks ago and scored that... um, Goal against Brentford in the cup, which was just unbelievably fast. He, I think, he's the fastest player I've seen in the flesh, and that includes Adama Traore, who is very, very fast. But yesterday, in the first like two or three minutes, he just like darted after a ball. I think he was offside or anything, but like it was actually quite breathtaking. Like, oh my god, this guy's fast! <laughs> you just see him go, <laughs> and, and he's really small as well. And he's an absolute pocket rocket, and uh, he obviously he nearly went to Leeds in January. And, the move fell through at the last minute when Swansea pulled out, but there's no chance he'll be playing Championship football next year. I think he can easily be going at top teams. He's got a hit on him as top, well. Top half of the Premier League. Yeah, yeah, it's a great finish as well for the goal. We sort of snuck in. But also you could see the absolute fear it gave the Slovakia defenders. And there was one guy, Vavro, who miscued a clearance like five times in the first half, even missed the ball once because whenever James got near him, he just wanted to panic and just get rid of the ball because this guy is so quick. Um, but then second half, they lost a bit of that urgency going forward and had to settle 
a bit deeper and gigs through on Ashley Williams and they had to ride their luck a bit. But there was so much to be taken from that first half, encouraging that I think um, the future looks quite bright. How's the mood there? Are the fans on board with what Giggs is doing? Was there any suspicion before the game that maybe it wasn't working out? He's been in the job a year now, hasn't he? How's, how's he doing? I think the, the jury's still out, really. I mean, 11 games, five wins, five defeats, one draw. Uh, the two wins over Ireland in earlier this season were encouraging. They were really good, particularly the one at home. And the way he's really trusting these youngsters is definitely a good sign for the future. But I think those who have seen Wales a bit more than I have uh, are a bit concerned about the overall game plan. It's not entirely clear how he wants Wales to play and what he wants Wales to do. And you could probably see that a bit yesterday when they lost control of the match and Giggs didn't really do anything or couldn't really do anything to, to change that. But um, to be honest, yesterday was a big, big win. They... Um, they're likely to finish behind Croatia in their qualifying group, so it's between them and Slovakia for second place, really. And they need to win their home points, essentially. And that gig, uh, Gareth Bale said that before, that pretty much we can't afford to drop any single points at home. So to go out and win that first game of the qualifier, big result, I think that will probably lift the mood a bit. Hello, I'm Brian Moore and I'm the host of Brian Moore's Full Contact. Each week we get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every ruck, maul and TMO decision. No-nonsense analysis covering the Six Nations, the World Cup, the Premiership, Pro 14, Premier 15s and everything in between. Search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast provider. Hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out and every Tuesday morning we will be there ready for your commute to work. That's Brian Moore's Full Contact, available from wherever you download your podcasts. JJ, it is with regret that I have to inform you it's time to talk about Scotland. Humbled in Kazakhstan, but they really put the world's worst team, San Marino, in their place with a 2-0 victory. When do you think you're next going to get to watch Scotland at an international tournament? Honestly, never. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Is it that bad? Uh, I don't understand. It's fault we've fallen so low that we're now below Kazakhstan in the group I know it's only after two, uh, two games but it's Kazakhstan come on and I don't see Gordon Strachan when he was manager he he uh, spoke often about how important it was that the entire of Scottish football sees how far behind we are there's not enough uh, pitches in Scotland there's not enough 4G pitches there's not enough close coaching it's a lot of people still are in favour of pumping the ball. You hear the fans' attitudes tend to be that they don't understand players who are neat and tidy with it. They just want people to go at them and it doesn't suit. This team was, I mean, delete it. It was awful. Both games were terrible. Kazakhstan was, the. I mean, it must be one of the worst results in Scottish football history. And it was... I think it's actually officially the worst result. I mean, it's Kazakhstan. And sure enough, right? So, well, I watched Aberdeen play. I think we've played, uh, um, I've seen Aberdeen play, and I think it's the Kazakhstani team twice. Uh, FC Astana and Karabag, who I think are also there, but they're so far east that it's basically in China. And um, they, they were good technical players, so they were good with the ball and comfortable with it at their feet, but they just weren't very good footballers generally. But they absolutely played Aberdeen off the park and they managed to get get the win. Scotland here turned up. And I don't know what... I honestly think if McLeish had just not gone and told the players to sort themselves out, they'd have got a better result. It, it, hugely tactically naive. You could see it from the start. Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan played a three... <laughs> played a 5-3-2 is what their starting formation was. Hey, which hey, was all the way through. They beat Latvia. Uh, <laughs> Andorra. Uh, <laughs> Faroe Islands. <laughs> but you, like, you could see... 
Kerstam were putting their wing backs. They had so little pressure on them for the two players, the two wide Scotland forwards, that they had the two wing backs were actual wingers alongside two strikers, and he kept with the same shape. I mean, I've seen that happen in Sunday League when you don't then pull your wide forwards back to to track them and double up, and the the poor left back Scotland, Graham Shinney, it's called, plays for Aberdeen. Um, He's been called out. He's been absolutely ripped to shreds. And um, on well, who cares about Twitter? He, but he was at fault for the first two. Come on. No, well, so yeah, in, definitely in the, the second. In, no, I don't think so. In the last action, yeah, he should be closer to it. But I mean, I can. There's, there's exact so that that goal, the second goal that Shinny's been ripped apart for. So Scotland should be in a kind of four-five-one shape in defence against Kazakhstan and like defending low against their 18-yard box. So Shinny is a central midfielder normally. That's where yes. he plays. And he's, yes. he used to play at left-back for um, Inverness Cali Thistle who won the Scottish Cup. He's been very good at left-back. But he is playing behind um, Ollie Burke mm. who is who doesn't know what defending is. He yes, plays, he plays as noticed. a striker for Celtic <laughs> and he was a winger when he was in Germany. Right? He, doesn't, he was always called out for his positioning. Uh, dreadful. And just beside Burke you have Stuart Armstrong who is basically a 10. He's a luxury player. You can't have that in a Scotland team that also has John McGinn and Ollie Burke and James Forrest and I don't know what Ollie McBurney is so you have these players here but Shinny's left side is being defended I'm doing inverted commas uh, with Armstrong and Burke ahead of him who are offering no protection so he has to do this when he's meant to tuck in to go next to Scott McKenna at centre-back um, for that goal there he should have a left midfielder wide watching the wing back he's got he's marking two players as yeah, that ball right. comes in that's true so yeah sure enough he's at fault for his listening he should be in but he can't go in because he has to follow the guy in the, on the far left there's yeah. nothing he can do about it no you're right and you're it's really right. hard and is it, everything with football people always say oh this guy was at fault it's not it's the entire team the first action the guy who passes the ball it's because should he have been came pressured. out and took responsibility he's the one who said it's my fault and I'm never yeah. going to play for this team again why take responsibility for something in which but then I understand That's because he's, he's like. trying to be that guy he's a captain know? he's a leader on the pitch he'll probably mm. be down in the championship I'd imagine this season so whoever gets him um, if he doesn't send a new contract at Aberdeen he'll absolutely love watching him play just uh, doesn't stop running uh, not the most gifted technically footballers but my god he'll <laughs> help you win but my question with these luxury players is that why was there no precision why was the passing so poor? Why was the crossing so inaccurate? Because they know? all suck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> JJ, is it a source of hope or humiliation that your group's actually quite winnable? Not winnable, uh, sec- second placeable behind Belgium. It's not. On, it? Honestly, um, it's, it's, it's the mentality. Is, how, do you, how do you fix this mentality? I don't know how you make Scotland players believe they are as good as Russia. I'd, I think we'd get gubbed absolutely by Russia Belgium would be if we can keep it below 5-0 I'd be pleased with yeah, that yeah no of course Belgium will beat you but Cyprus, Russia Kazakhstan, to be clear I don't San play Marino. for them just to be <laughs> <laughs> but that's not that, as draws go that's quite favourable yeah really. but this is the whole thing like, it's almost as if um, Euro 2020 was designed with all the new teams just so Scotland could get back in because they're a good bunch of lads but now <laughs> we're watching it on the TV again it's awful and it, it, there's calls for McLeish to go which is harsh but I really think in international management you need a manager who's closer to the age of the players who are in the team because it helps. Um, what? I know it's worked with Spain when they won the World Cup on their best team ever. And but, Italy. And Italy, yeah. But these are all players, teams with great players. <laughs> it has worked in the past. I think when you're trying to build from the ground up, not um, just make already good players a bit better, it helps having managers who are a bit younger, like Yogi Lowe is in Germany. I, I just think it's... There's something about it, and I'm doing this based on lots of uh, managerial research of this article I keep talking about that I'm never, ever going to actually finish. And because you did say this last week that you thought younger <laughs> managers were the thing. If you don't win stuff by a certain age, you never win stuff. 
Well, tell that to Lett Ranieri. <laughs> Uh, can I just say before we move on, Karabag are an Azerbaijani football team. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. What's the score, Mina? It's 1-1. One, one. <laughs> I've watched Karabag in Baku. Congrats. It was... <laughs> they weren't very good. Let's move on to what remains of the Premier League now. Every team, seven or eight games left. How long do we think the title race is going to remain a going concern for? It's going to go down to the wire. Okay, surely. that's good. That's good. there's there's a crucial week I've circled in my calendar in the title race Uh, City play Spurs at home on April the 20th which is also after they've played them in the Champions League and then they play Man United away on April 24th which is a Wednesday night yeah it's a horrific week that's that's the big week those are the four days I think in which the title race will be determined because Liverpool have got two big six two top six sides left and that's Spurs at home and Chelsea also at home. So I think that Man United away is the uh, is the big one. The consensus now seems to be it's City's title again, uh, almost as overwhelming as it was in January when we were all saying it's definitely going to be Liverpool. Do any of you still fancy Liverpool to do it? I still think they're going to feel the pressure too much in this final bit, and City have the experience now of winning and know how to do it. I don't know. I honestly don't know. The reason why I'm not sure about this is because it's like Sam said, it's a really horrible week that they have to go through, which is facing Spurs twice um, and then going on to, to play United in the derby. And, you know, they've they've got games that I know they, they look easy, but they could be difficult. Leicester and Crystal Palace could be difficult. Um for me, I think that what's Liverpool, what Liverpool need to do is make sure that they do dispensive sides like Newcastle and that they don't fall foul to, to the whole pressure thing. But theirs just looks like an easier run. It, there doesn't seem to be so much pressure, as in they're not playing every three days to a really tough side. Um, so, And all their big ho- games are at home against Chelsea and Tottenham. And the rest, you would just think that they can overcome it. I, I'm, I don't know. For me, I'm just worried Spurs are falling out of the top four. Yeah, what's the, let's talk about that top four. Obviously, the top two looks fairly set in stone, but that's going to be uh, an intriguing subplot for the rest of the year. Who's going to be the second two teams that make the Champions League? United's definitely one of them, Oh, I think. Wow. I, you don't think so? I sort of wonder if the PSG game is going to... We're going to look back and think that was it. That was peak Solskjaer at United, <laughs> and it's all sort Crumpled of... Crumpled since. It's all gone wrong since ah, then. Until they pull out something really special against Barcelona, and then everyone wonders if Messi's really better than Ronaldo. Okay. Leave it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I mean, they've got Wolves away uh, following Watford, and then they obviously got the Derby and Chelsea, which is only four days between that. But... This is a side that I just feel the players will be really determined to get into top four because I don't think they'll they'll live with themselves if they're anything below that, even though Pogba looks like he's selling himself to Real Madrid. But barring that, it just I just feel that this is a group of young kids and, and, and they really won't tolerate anything more than, you know, not um, not being in the top four. Spurs, it, it, my only worry is that Pochettino is starting to crack a little bit under the pressure. They were always a side that sort of are happy to be in third place, but if that's under pressure, it's about whether or not they do they pull out a Spursy move. Sta- I think, stadium's a boost though, isn't it? That's what you think. So then I think it's those two. Mm, okay. Any any dissent? Uh, I, can I just say that, and I know this is really like unpopular view, but the race for the top four is has much more long-term significance than the title race this season. I think if you look at the clubs, particularly, well, less less so Man U, but Chelsea, Spurs and Arsenal, whichever one doesn't make it or whichever two don't make it are going to be in big, big 
problems going forward. I mean, Spurs, if they don't get the Champions League money coming in, that stadium's going to take a lot more time to pay off. They're not going to be able to buy any players. Their squad's ageing. They need to refresh that. Champions League is absolutely crucial to their financial future. The same goes for Arsenal, who, as we all know, will only invest what they make and can only make more money in the Champions League, can only attract more players in the Champions League. And again, they've got a squad where the highest owners are all 29 or 30 or, old, or older. And then you've got Chelsea, who have this transfer ban incoming and are likely to lose Hazard. So without Champions League for them, how are they going to attract a player of that kind of calibre? And you can sort of see with each transfer window, with each passing season, Chelsea's squad seems to get worse and worse and worse. Like every player they replace is replaced by a player who's worse than the one who's left. And that and that is only going to continue but more dramatically in if they don't get Champions League again. So you can actually look at it and think this could be a, a turning point, a sort of a sliding doors moment for all three of those clubs. And therefore it is the most intriguing part of the season to go. Chelsea deserve it for the way that they've uh, run this club for the last three years. So to be honest, if they miss out, they've got no one else to blame but themselves and how they've run this team. Um, For me, I don't think Arsenal are too... I don't think it's that bad if they don't make it. I think that it's new. I still think that even if they don't have the money to purchase all the players that they want to, there's still enough that can be done under Unai Emery with this squad to just benefit a little bit more next season and, and just take it a longer, albeit slower, and you know not, not exactly a richer route to, to the top four. But I think they can afford to take their time. I don't think Spurs can. Mm, I, I don't necessarily see how Arsenal will improve massively by this time next year if they don't get Champions League football because obviously some of the target recruitment targets were set up whilst Ben Mislintat was still here he's now gone they have so far been unable to find a replacement as a technical director to lead that sort of long-term strategic recruitment plan which needs to be so efficient for them because they haven't got the money to go out and spend 60 million on a fullback or a centre back, or whatever. So they need yeah, they need they need to find the hidden gems, and they need someone to do that. And right now they haven't got one, uh, so that's a problem. And I don't necessarily see that squad. I don't. Urza won't be better next year. Aubameyang won't be better next year. Lacazette might be, but he might. Frankly, he's the only one with any sort of resale value. Him and Guendouzi. So I wouldn't be that shocked. And, and I don't Torreira. I don't know this at all. This is purely my personal view. I've, I'm not reporting it. That is something I've been told. But I can see those sorts of players going uh, if if they can't get Champions League football. I just, I just don't see how they're necessarily going to improve massively. Uh, but it's in their hands. It's in their hands, of course. Emery's done a very good job this season to get them where they are now. The, the issue for them would be their away form, which has been so so difficult this season, so poor this season. But um, if they can improve that even a little bit, then they should, they should get top four. You're listening to the Telegraph Audio Football Club, part of the Telegraph Podcasting Network. To find more of our podcasts, just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Let's now delve into European football with the well-known segment, A Song for Europe, featuring Mina Rizuki. Mina, the aforementioned Paul Pogba transfer story. It's a Paul Pogba rumour seemingly endorsed by Paul Pogba that he uh, might go to Real Madrid. Is Is there much truth to this? I just don't think he's topping Zinedine Zidane's list. Um, If I'm truly honest, I know they're both French. I know that they have great respect for one another. I know Zidane thinks that he's a great player. And I know that Pogba would love to work under him. I just think that Zidane has a particular way of doing things. And the whole reason he's accepted to go back to Real Madrid is that he makes the, the choices. And those choices won't be based on 
commercial value of players necessarily. He, for some reason, seems to have an eye on Milinkovic-Savic. And if it's not Milinkovic-Savic, they'd like Christian Eriksen. And the reason why is not because they think Eriksen is better than Pogba or anything when it comes to a midfielder having to replace Modric, but because they actually don't have that much money to spend. So all the money that they do have is either going to go to the stadium or the purchase of Kylian Mbappe. And that's the guy that they're going to go all out for because it's Ronaldo they need to replace. Did you see Pogba's pass against Moldova? Did you mm. see this? For Griezmann? Oh, get get on the YouTube for that one. Incredible. That's beautiful. It's sort of one of those like fake shot, but like, flicked it like 20 yards and Griezmann just volleyed it top corner phenomenal goal take that Moldova uh, Jose Mourinho <laughs> says he is targeting a return to management in June Mina do we still think Inter is his most likely uh, new employer no I don't think so okay um, I think obviously the fans would love him back. I just don't think he fits into the whole business strategy of a side that's really trying to grow on a business level and, and sort of stay away from drama and not spend too much on a team, but create an organically balanced, tactically balanced side that doesn't have too much drama. I I still, I don't know what it is, but there's still a part of me that thinks it's PSG. I know they keep saying it's Thomas Tuchel and that he's going to be confirmed for next season. But I don't know if you read this quote in which Mourinho comes out and says about Mbappe being untransferable, that there's no way that this guy should leave. There's no way that this guy is going to be sold, absolutely going to stay. It almost speaks to the fact that he's now in charge of a PSG and he's turning around to Madrid and saying, you're not going to take this guy. There's a part of me that still thinks something could happen on that level. What is it with all these managers choosing their dates in advance for returning to work? Because Wenger <laughs> was like, I'll be back on January the 1st. <laughs> that's not how football works. You yeah. can't just pick and choose when someone's going to get fired. It's, Maybe it's you a, can if you're that big. Move. A bold move. Title basically sewn up in Germany, France and Spain. Germany? Mina. Yeah, come on. We, that, that's only trending in one direction, isn't well, it? But it's 60-60. They're both on 60 points, Dortmund who's, and who's Bayern. Winning, who's winning the league in Germany? Dortmund. What percentage chance would you give them? 70. 70? Yes. Wow, okay. <laughs> Bolder than stating your uh, return to uh, management date. Um, is there anything else, any leagues in Europe or any teams we should be keeping a particular eye on in what remains of the season? Who, give me an interesting story away from the title race. I think it's interesting to see what happens in the top. Yeah, it really isn't interesting, isn't it? Oh. Um, I was going to say. Lost commitment halfway through. <laughs> I was going to try to be like, you know. She the, went in hard. But. I went. I mean, look, I still think Italy is interesting for the simple sake that, uh, I mean, you know, Inter was supposed to be the, the team that were going to challenge Juve for the Scudetto, but now they might not even make, you know, that their third now. Milan nearly took them over, but then the derby lost. It's interesting to see what happens because they're the size that you think will do really well in the Champions League, Milan and Inter, so you kind of want them in there. Um, for Germany, I still think it's interesting but just because of the top two. I don't think the rest of it is all that interesting. As for Spain, I don't know what happened to Sevilla. They capitulated. Um, you know, Real Madrid really, yeah, Spain really has nothing going for it this season. Getafe a fourth. There are some interesting things that come up and down, but then and Real Betis is doing exceptionally well. Everyone's talking about their coach, but you still know that it's just going to be Barcelona, and if it's not Barcelona, then behind them is Atletico. Yeah, get any mention of Getafe, and I'm hearing uh, the sound of the scraping of Lost Barrel. Right, let's. We, as we know, it's International Week. Sam Dean and I were talking this week about what sorts of things we could discuss 
on the podcast, which we wouldn't normally get round to. Uh, and we're, we're calling this section Dino's Fun Bag. So we've, we've decided, Sam, haven't we, on six topics, and I've got an actual die in my hand, and we're going to roll this die to decide which uh, topic we discuss. Shall I run through the topics? In advance, to I'm just going to refuse to speak about all of I them think, except I think, one. Okay, I think interesting. I generally thought it was called a dice. So it is a die. A die is a plural. Uh, a plural I think that's two die. one now, uh, Mina. Uh, I say I say we don't run through the topics. Okay, we'll leave uh, them. We, uh, we leave, we'll them, leave them, them on the, the board future, for the future. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to roll. I'm going to roll the die. Ready? It's two, which <sighs> means we are discussing. Gareth Bale's goal against Liverpool in the Champions League final was arguably the greatest goal of all time. I'll start with you, Sam. Well, it's not arguably. I, oh. think, I think this is... I've thought about this a lot because that's the kind of person I am and that's the kind of life I live. Uh, Gareth Bale's goal was the best goal of all time. And I'll explain why. Because it's got the combination of the actual goal and the context of the moment, which is the winning goal in a Champions League final, which is the pinnacle of football. We, we know the World Cup's a big deal, but in terms of quality... Yeah, yeah, you can't really argue that. In terms of quality, Champions League final is the one. Yeah, but so, only recently... Yeah, things change. Yeah, but okay. In that case, I've I've also. What about I've got, like I've Pele's got, goals for Brazil in the World Cup? I've got I've done a list. Oh, oh my god! What I believe you're prepared what for this I fun believe bag. to be the oh, a spreadsheet. <laughs> uh, the seven best goals in history, and I can tell you why each of them aren't better than Gareth Bale's goal. But if you want to propose any other names, and by give, all give means, give me the seven. I want to just headline uh, no, three or something. Number two is Zidane by Leverkusen, for all the same reasons of. Bale's goal, except Bale's goal was just a bit better. Number three, Marco van Basten, Euro final on the volley. Number four, Pele in the World Cup final, 58 against Sweden when he was 17, flicked over the guy's head and volleyed the bottom corner. That Pe- for me is the best goal ever. But that wasn't better than Bale's bicycle kick. Keep going, keep going, keep going, because I want to know if something has made this list or not. Uh, Maradona v England next. Mm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, next one, which I think is a very underrated goal Messi v Real Madrid, Champions League semi final. Yeah. In the context of that was like the time they played them four times in like ten days, and it was like the 80th minute, and it was nil nil, and it all gone off, and that was the day of the press conference when Pep Guardiola had said that Mourinho is the effing chief in this place, and he lost his rag at him, and it was brilliant, and then Messi settles that tie or changes that tie in Barcelona's favour by running past like three players, uh, and then after that, Rivaldo's bicycle kick for Barcelona is that number seven. Uh, I believe so, yeah, which was the... Sorry, uh, where's Trevor Sinclair? Have I missed Trevor Sinclair? <laughs> context, Tom, I think you have. I think you have. FA Cup, fourth round. I agree with these parameters, but I think also this context of when you're watching the goal and what's going on, like you could say it's the same for music, like God Only Knows by the Beach Boys is probably the greatest song ever written, but you don't want to listen to it when you're trolleyed on the way home in a tube. <laughs> you want something with loud guitars. <laughs> And you can also say, like in context as well, like so, it, it's either a team goal or an individual goal. And um, I love watching uh, Ronaldo R nine on uh, YouTube sometimes. After also on the way home, but the um, uh, Messi versus Bilbao in the Copa del Rey final when he runs halfway through the pitch, that's incredible. I don't know any player in the world who can do that apart from Messi. Um, but also. I remember the most excited I've been watching a football game recently was uh, when Sergio Roberto scored that the very, very winning goal against PSG in the Champions League for Barcelona. That was incredible. Not the most, you know, best goal you've ever seen actually at technical level, but God, it was cool. And uh, you know, he's, I, I was live blogging it and jumped up and was going ah in the oh office. <laughs> but really, it was amazing. The drama, the, yeah. dra- the narrative was good on that one. Exactly. But, but Bale had narrative plus execution. I think your parameters are correct. So, if, what about the fact that? 
Pele was 17 years old mm, and it was context. a World Cup final. That's why I bumped up to number four. Because... Oh, to number four? <laughs> yeah, because didn't even the, goal, the goal itself was good, but it wasn't like an absolute jaw dropper. But when you throw in this World Cup final, only 17, it bumps it up due to the context. If Gareth Bale was 75 when he scored that goal in the Champions League final, <laughs> then it would be more impressive. Yeah. Dino has uh, conclusively closed his own fun mm. bag. Finally, Gabon fans this weekend have called on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang to retire from international duty after he failed to lead them to AFCON qualification, uh, African Cup of Nations, of course. I believe it was a one-all draw with Burundi, which is not a great result. My question to you all is, when have you been desperate for a footballer to call it a day? And we've had some responses from our friends on Twitter. At Tifa CFC says, Every day at Chelsea, I hope for Willian, <laughs> Alonso, Pedro, Higuain, Azpilicueta, Rudiger and Louise all to retire. Excessive. Andy says, I watch a lot of MLS and watching Kaká play for Orlando City in his final <laughs> season was horrible. His body just couldn't cope anymore. And to see someone who was world-class for many years struggled to move about the pitch was hard to watch. I didn't want to remember him that way. Sam Waters adds, sounds like Edgar Davids at Palace. JJ, who have you got? Oh, well, as in, what, when I've been desperate for a footballer to call it a day, I think it was four minutes into Scotland versus Kazakhstan when I wanted the entire of Scotland <laughs> to end... Also, weirdly, on a Scottish note as well, um, Scott Brown, earlier in this season playing for Celtic and playing for Scotland in, before he retired again, um, he looked broken, completely done, legs shot, game's gone, he's still a hard man, he brings lots of uh, mental strength to the team that he's in, but he looked done. And all of a sudden, he's drank, drank from the river of youth or something, and he's running everywhere, and he's been brilliant for Celtic again in the league. I remember Bastian Schweinsteiger at Man United looked useless as well. Who have you got, Mina? Uh, every Italian ever. Um, no, that's not true. Look, I mean, Totti retiring at 40 was like, please just just do it. Like, for the love of God, just go away now. Yeah, it's been about six years that you should have done the this. The farewell festival was wonderful. Uh, and, and the never-ending interviews about how the coach, how dare he get rid of a 40-year-old? How dare he? And every day Totti telling us that, you know, he turned down Real Madrid for Roma. It's like, because you're a coward, not because you're loyal. You Whoa. just didn't want to show yourself to not be the great player that you are. Del Piero at Juventus every day. Is he arguing with Conde? Are they arguing? Is he ever going to play again? Just go away. You're 100 years old, you know. <laughs> it, it's just, I mean, and I support these teams and I love these players, but there just comes a time where, and now everyone's talking about this wonderful Italian side with a bunch of children in it. You know, Moise Ken is like a child scoring goals and Zaniolo's new. And then you've got Fabio Quarella. 36 years old, crying because he's just so happy with this experience of being part of the national team, you know, for the first time since 2010, nine years ago, yeah, nine years ago. And you're just like, dude, don't accept the call up. Let's just give it up to the new generation. It's time to just retire when you hit 34 at least. I don't know. I would take it now. I'm 34 this year. I would definitely go and play. Yeah, well, he's oh, really thrilled with that it. That call is coming scorer. any day now, I On think. On the topic of great goals, surely Quagliarelli is Leave it, Sam. Your fun bag is closed now. <laughs> but that is a, gr- yeah, he's he, a great he, guy. He's a scorer that. of great goals. Mm. Before, before his, his own YouTube compilation is, is something sick, special. It's yeah. sick. Before it's so Sam good. offers his, uh, his player, we should mention um, Kazuyoshi Miura, who's a Japanese forward who's still playing now at 52. Oh, wow. And he's still scoring goals as well. I bet for, you he rejected Real Madrid as well. Please for Yokohama FC. Finish us off, Sam. Who have you been desperate to see retire? Uh, Buffon. Oh. Uh, I just think this this de- this desperate sort of push for the Champions League is, is it's becoming unedifying now. And the the day that uh, 
he told Michael Oliver he had a rubbish bin for a heart was I think the day he should have called his <laughs> called it a day because that was such a brilliant way to bow out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel like you know, and you saw how we struggled against Man United recently, and it's just like. Buffon, I'm sorry. I mean, UFA fans genuinely believe that they've got to run, like they can actually win this title because he's not there anymore and because he might be just a bit of a curse. Do you have um, one, Tom? But he's wonderful. Uh, I was going to say Wayne Rooney in his last few years at Manchester United, but he's completely proven me wrong now. He's, uh, he's having a wonderful time in America. I watched a bit of him in their first game, um, DC United's first game of the season. And he, he still doesn't look quick, unsurprisingly. <laughs> but the way, you know, an, an MLS-level defender, if they came down and played with six aside with us, would look like the best player we've ever seen. They can't get close to him. He, he, they, get, they try and kind of come right close to him into the back of him because they know he's not beating him for pace. But his touch and his awareness, they, he just looks an absolutely... Uh, he's on another level, which, which of course he is. It just goes to show that he is a wonderful player and I hope he has a very happy retirement at the age of 52 like your Japanese mate. That's all for this week's Audio Football Club. Don't forget you can contact me on Twitter if you would like to. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. You can also send us an email. Of course you can. It's 2019. AFC Podcast at telegraph.co.uk is the address. We will read out the best of what you send us on next week's episode or maybe some other episode. You have to keep listening to find out. The best way to do that, of course, is to subscribe to Audio Football Club. Just type the words Audio Football Club into the internet. Take it from there. Backing you. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.